Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. You'll find in your bulletins uh, the uh, passage that we will look at today from 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 12 and 13, and also included there is Matthew 6, 13. If you want to see this in its context, you can turn to page 957 in the Pew Bible. Or, of course, look in your own Bible, 1 Corinthians 10. Matthew 6 is always has always seemed to me a very interesting prayer because it recognizes uh, our weakness to such an extent that we are praying to the Lord that we not even have temptation, that He deliver us, that He He lead us not into temptation. It's a way to recognize our weakness. Uh, But if we encounter it, deliver us uh, from evil. So these are... Closely related in their content about temptation. Now, up to this point, Paul has given himself as an example in chapter 9 of the, the fierce way that he comes after the Christian life. He also, in, first, in chapter 10, this very chapter, talks about the children of Israel and how they themselves, in their carelessness, fell into sin after sin, and so many died in the wilderness. And so he's contrasting his own earnest desire to seek God in everything, even though he's an apostle. And he doesn't sit back. He doesn't coast in any way as a believer. Uh, but he's, he's throwing himself fully into his Christian life. Uh, and he's, he's dealing with the Corinthians who are uh, themselves engaged in just the most careless involvement in sin. And he's warning them against uh, the destruction of this in their life. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. Therefore, having talked about the Israelites, let anyone who thinks that he stands, that is, boastfully, confidently, thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And as Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you attend your people, that you constantly uphold us in Christ, that you have brought us out of darkness into your light. You've transferred us from the domain of the enemy of Satan into the kingdom of your dear Son. You have, Lord, caused us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Lord, you 
have caused us to be born anew, born from above. We are new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We thank you, Lord, that there is hope of continual progressive change in our life and that you are faithful to protect us in temptation. Oh, Lord, we pray that by your grace, we will move ahead in a bolder obedience and trusting you in your power to protect us and to change us and to throw ourselves into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to throw ourselves into becoming all that we can be in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, bless us to that end. Fix our hearts upon your word even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by talking about two things that we tend to do uh, concerning sin. Two things that we're sometimes guilty of in regarding to sin. There are others, but I just want to mention these two. The first is we, like the Corinthians, can be extremely careless with sin. And then secondly, we tend to make excuses about our sin. We're we're first careless because so often we don't avoid sin and we don't avoid the things that lead to sin. Carefully and diligently, we're not concerned as we should be. We're flippant and casual and apathetic and lax and lazy in regard to sin. And then, on top of that, we tend to make excuses when we do sin and we don't own our responsibility for sin. And they're closely related because the excuses I make provide a cover for more careless sin. Excuse my sin, involve myself in sin. And Paul, uh, with the Corinthians, has been warning them about how careless they are in regard to their sin. They apparently, as we look at this uh, letter, viewed themselves as having some kind of special protection against sin so that they could involve themselves in sin without consequences. Uh, many of the TV shows that, uh, where there's a week-to-week competition uh, like, say, Project Runway. Yes, I watch Project Runway. Um, <coughs> it's right after, uh, it's right after uh, the PGA tournament. You know, and so I just watch it because of that. Um, <coughs> no. Uh, so if you win in one week's competition, you get immunity the next week. So that if you even lose the next week, if you score bottom, you still get to go through because you have immunity. And that's kind of how the Corinthians viewed themselves. We've got immunity. We've been baptized. We have the Lord's Supper every week. And we're completely spiritual people. We're in the heavenlies already. We've got immunity. We don't really have to pay that much attention to our sinfulness. And so they were immersed in sexual immorality. They had terrible sexual immorality in their midst and wouldn't do anything about it. They attended the idolatrous feasts and they just were completely careless. Paul, the apostle, one you would think, well, if anybody could coast, if anybody's in and could say, hey, I've done so much, I've suffered so much. No, Paul says, I constantly live as an athlete would live. Spiritually, I'm like an athlete is physically because I want to enjoy all the blessings of this very gospel that I proclaim. 
And of course, he, as I've said, he talks about the Israelites and their careless involvement in sexual immorality and idolatry in the wilderness and how they fell uh, dead. They were judged. And that's where we come to this verse that we read. Uh, any, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's really the context of no temptation is overtaking you, but is common or that is just human. Don't think of yourselves as as immune. Don't think of yourselves. Don't kid yourself. The temptation you face is regular human temptation. If you don't resist it, it will kill you. You face the normal, deadly temptation that everyone else faces. If you give into it as a way of life, you will face the normal, deadly results. Don't think of yourself as having immunity. Whether you've been baptized, you have the Lord's Supper, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're an elder, deacon, you're, uh, you're in charge of the women of the church, you're an officer in the women of the church, it doesn't matter. None of these things matter so that we can say, well, I'm okay, I'm in. No, the, the Christian life is one in which we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, thankful for what He's done for us on the cross, and He's forgiven us for our sins, and we give ourselves relentlessly to His will. That is the normal Christian life. And anything but that, Paul would say, you need to be concerned. You cannot, you cannot regard sin as a light thing. But as several commentators have pointed out, this phrase, Let, that no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man, also addresses the excuses that the Corinthians were making. On the one hand, it, it addresses the their lack of a sense of the danger of sin, but also it addresses the Corinthians' excuses. Now, maybe I can illustrate what these feasts were like. Suppose you work in an office and every Thursday night, all the guys, and they have for several years, you're an unbeliever with everybody else, and every Thursday night, all the guys go to Hooters, okay? So, one thing in the next, you go to a Bible study, you start reading the Word, you become convicted of sin, you come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you become a Christian, begin attending the worship of God and growing in His Word. And after a while, you begin to think, I can't go to Hooters on Thursday night anymore. I just can't. It, it compromises my life. It compromises my purity when I'm there. Uh, I, I, you become convicted. But it's a tough decision because uh, the whole group goes. Everybody goes. It's the guy thing. It's where connections are made. It's when, where all this laughter occurs and, and everybody goes from there to do different things afterwards. And so you decide that tough thing and you decide that you are going to have to say, no, I can't, I can't go to Hooters anymore. And of course... They're just like, you're what? You're not going to go? Why? Well, that's no big deal. You're, you're really not going to go with this? And you start feeling the, indif- the, the different way that they treat you in the uh, weeks and months after that. You're not one of them anymore because you've decided that you can't participate. Well, see, the pagan feasts were popular like that. It was a celebration of the whole community. It's kind of like the Friday night football game in a small town everybody's there every Friday night. 
it brought everybody together. And in some towns, uh, as I've found, if you want the right connections and the right standing in the community, you go to a particular church or maybe two. You don't go to the other church. You go to those churches for the right connections. It's a terrible reason to go to church, but that's the reason many people go. The pagan feasts are like that. The right connections. Be a part of the who's who of society. You have to go to the pagan feasts. It's like going to all the right parties and all the right affairs. Being seen in the society section of the local paper at all the important events. You can't be absent from the pagan feasts. And suddenly, not to go. And they're like, you mean you're never going again to the pagan, to, to the feast? You're not going to attend? And so, all the contacts, all the rubbing shoulders and the deals made, so much of the laughter and the happy relationship of your community is gone. You're out of it. You're out of the loop. You're out of the circle. And you can see how you would want to make excuses. Uh, As Paul talks about in chapter 8 that they would do, well, what's an idol anyway? (laughs) An idol's a piece of wood. It's nothing. It's a piece of metal. So if I'm at an idol feast, I'm at nothing. They're just idols, and idols are nothing. So it doesn't matter that I go there. And, of course, Paul talks about this later in chapter 10, that uh, behind idolatry is is demons, uh, demon worship. Demons uh, would allocate all of that worship to themselves. And you think, in my situation, it would be weird if I'm the only one from the office that's not there. It'll be weird if I'm the only guy at the wedding party that doesn't go to the men's club on the Friday night before the wedding. I'm in a special circumstance. I've got an excuse here. And so, in verse 13, Paul is saying, no, um, there's no temptation that you face that isn't just the normal human temptation. You're not a special He's saying. You're not facing any worse situation than others are. You're not in some super difficult situation that demands that you compromise where other people don't have that difficult situation. You're facing the same human temptation that everyone else faces. You don't have an excuse any more than anyone else does. You're not a special case. So I think this phrase hits home in two ways. On the one hand, it says you face the same human temptation that others face, the same danger, so don't be careless. Don't think you're immune from its deadly consequences while others are not immune. So the same danger, but on the other hand, you're not in some specially difficult circumstance that makes you have to sin, so don't make excuses about your sin. So they would like to appeal to the special circumstances that they had to go to the feast, they had to participate in the uh, pagan uh, prostitution, etc. So that's the Corinthians' excuse. And secondly, I'd like to just talk a little bit about our excuses, our excuses. And let's just talk about one area. We could talk about many areas, but maybe we explore one and then you think about every other area of your life. But this is one we all uh, face. What about your excuses for anger, resentment, bitterness? That's one we love to have excuses for. Because it's always what somebody else does, what somebody else has has done to us, etc. Now, of course, as Scripture points out, there can be good anger, like 
having anger over the fact that on average 4,000 babies are killed every day in our country by abortion. That's something to get angry about. Or to get angry that people are being tortured and killed in a foreign nation, uh, nation by a dictator who's just drunk with power. Those are good things to be angry about. And, and so, in, in as much as we would be angry in that way, we could be like God who is angry against such sin. There's a time for proper anger. But we're talking about personal anger toward others who mistreat you or ignore you or simply pull out in front of you or who don't pay attention to you like you think they should or don't serve you like they think you, you think they should or they make a mistake or they don't follow through, they fail you in some way or who, like your kids, don't obey you or respect you like they should. In these cases... Paul says, here it is, the last few verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, we like to think that our anger is caused by circumstances. I was tired. I had a hard day at work. You don't know my husband or my wife or my kids or my mother-in-law or my neighbor or my boss. And so we constantly are putting it off on someone else or something else. Anger and resentment and bitterness, Jesus teaches, comes from the heart. If you want to turn there in Matthew chapter 15... And again, in the Pew Bible, this is found on page 820 and 21. It's an interesting situation here because the Pharisees and scribes are getting on to the disciples because they're not washing their hands. There's a particular way that you're supposed to ritually wash your hands. You had you cupped your hand and you poured it over your hand in a particular way to cleanse yourself so that you'd be ritually clean uh, before you ate. And they're asking, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, the Lord Jesus turns it around and talks about the way the Pharisees were breaking the traditions truly. Uh, but we won't get into that. But... Um, that bears some uh, study as well. But then in verse 10, dealing with this issue of, of this water not cleansing themselves properly, uh, defiling them, he says in verse 10, uh, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, as though food not properly washed or cleansed or hands not properly washed makes you a sinner, you know, defiles you. You're holy, but this outside thing's going to make you unholy because you're pure if, if, if you can just wash yourself in the right way and go through the right ritual. He says, that's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So it's something deep within that spills out of me. That's what defiles me. It's not that somebody has made me do something. It's what, it's how I respond. It's what I do. It's what comes out of my heart. And notice he says in verse 17, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? 
so much for food defiling you. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. As I've said before, uh, we, we have the phrase sometimes, get your mind out of the gutter. And Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you something, your mind is the gutter. Your mind makes the gutter. That's where the toxic waste pours forth is from our hearts. That's why in God's salvation, as Jesus says, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That is, the Holy Spirit is planted at the root of our being where He needs to be, you see. That's the glorious hope of change, is that the Holy Spirit is born within us and His life comes uh, from within. But here's the, the responsibility falling upon us and us alone. Now, another passage that you can turn to, this will be our last one to to turn to if you want to do this with us. Romans chapter 12. We we don't often turn to passage after passage because it can kind of make you get lost. But Romans chapter 12, if you want to turn to page 948, beginning with verse 14. Now, this is interesting because... Paul speaking about situation in which the, the believers are being hurt, persecuted, perhaps economically uh, isolated, perhaps in prison, perhaps even killed, as of course happened to the believers. And so here's the idea, how do you react to that thing? How do you respond? What comes out of your heart when others mistreat you? That's the question. And so often it's like, he hit me first. And God's like, what? Does that matter at all? You mean you hit him just like he hit you? You did the same thing he did you? What does it matter? No, 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 no. He hit me first. That's always, isn't that what we think? That's what made mine right. Yeah, I was just as mad as him. I might have hated him more than he hated me when I hit him. But it's okay Because he hit me first. So, here we go. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So the response is, I'm persecuted, and then I bless them, and I do not curse them. I perhaps pray for them. I perhaps serve them in some way. I hope for their good, even as they do evil to me. That's what it is. I earnestly desire their good, even though they've been evil to me. In fact, their evil to me, in the end, doesn't change my basic approach to do them good. And so he continues, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't worry about justice. God will take care of justice. It's not your place to mete out justice personally to people around you. I will now judge you because you've done me wrong. (laughs) 
I will execute God's judgment upon you because you have mistreated me. He says, don't do that. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? The one who does you wrong, you're going to do him good. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, you will hopefully over a period of time show him that you are one who's going to love him no matter what. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, uh, speaking to the church as a whole, he says, Continue to do good so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they will finally glorify God because of you. Even if you're misunderstood and abused and lies are said about you, he says, continue to do good so that eventually they will glorify God because of you. And then in a key verse, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice, evil can be done to you and then you're overcome by it and caught up with it and become like that. And now you're participating in the same evil that was dealt out to you. There's an interesting part of the third, uh, or maybe just the second um, Matrix movie where Mr. Smith starts multiplying himself and his, his dark form when he touches another being in the matrix, that being turns black and finally turns into Mr. Smith. And so he's multiplying himself. And so that's the way evil can do. It can multiply itself and be born in another person and another person and another person. Gossip can work like that. Instead of being overcome by evil, we overcome evil with good. So you see, making excuses becomes victim language. It's as though I'm handing over the keys of my life to anybody who will do me wrong, the keys of my heart into their hands so that the very, my very destiny can be given over to another person or to other people or to circumstances. I will be dictated by other people in the way they treat me. They will even form my character and they will even finally form my very destiny. That's what excuses can do. We do away with all responsibility. It's like making them the Lord of your life, making them the dictators of your emotions and your choices, your character, your future. And the irony is that when you've been hurt and hurt badly by another person, you can give your person, that person control over your life for months and even years, for decades. Just hand over your life to that person. And so, I like the little phrase I read years ago, you have a responsibility, and he divided it into two, two words, response-ability, the ability to respond by God's grace. By God's grace, you can choose what you will be in every circumstance. And that's what Paul is talking about here, that there is a way out of every temptation. He will never allow you to be overpowered beyond your ability in Christ. There's always the way out. There's always the way to respond in Christ. 
you have the ability in Christ to respond in a completely different way than expected. As in, pray for those that persecute you. Do good to those that harm you. (laughs) How can that be? Because I'm choosing to love and I'm not going to be overcome by that evil, but I'm going to overcome evil and continue to do good as God gives me grace to do so. And so, if you justify your sinful reactions to people's sin against you, then you put your life into the hands of other people. So, we must come to that point where we forgive as Christ has forgiven us, that we pray for that person and his or salvation or his or her good, and we take responsibility to live the new life that we have in Christ. And so earlier in Ephesians 4, that passage where he says, put away malice and anger and bitterness. Earlier he says in chapter 4, put off your new self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self, and here's a glorious statement, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not as though God is standing on the other side of the river and saying, you got to change yourself, you got to be different. He says, I've created a new self after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put your new self on. Walk in your new life that you have in Christ. Trust me in my power. Give yourself to the will of God. Enjoy and benefit from my forgiveness and and meditate on my forgiveness so that you in turn would forgive others. It's interesting then, 1 Peter 2.24, he died so that He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to anger. Die to sexual immorality. Die to lying. Die to a lack of prayer. Die to a lack of joy. Die to any part of sin and live to a whole new life in Christ. That's why He died. And I love the passage in Colossians 1. It says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His dear Son, so that we are under new ownership. We are under new ownership. We're under new kingship. 2 Corinthians 5 says we are a new creation. In Paul, this means you're part of a whole new world, a whole new universe that God has brought you into with the people of God. And so, you have the Corinthians' excuse in regard to the festival. You have the way we play out our excuses in that way. And, and that's why back at 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks to those excuses in that verse. And he says, here's the central thing, God is faithful in temptation. God is faithful. He's always involved. He's never absent. He never has his back turned. He never puts us in over our heads. He says in verse 13, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. Escape routes are critical in buildings, aren't they? Some families have escape routes in their houses and go over that with their children. And he says, God will always provide the escape route. In other words, you are never forced to sin. Now, if someone put 150, 175 pounds, I don't know exactly what my limit would be now that I'm in my 50s, but I'm just guessing about here. 
I would probably be able to lift it, but I'd have to exert a lot of effort to get that 170 pounds, not up this way, but just on a bench press, okay? But if they put 400 pounds on the bar, if I could even get it up and I brought it down, if somebody doesn't come rescue me, it's probably going to kill me, you know? Because I can't get it off my chest. I can't move it. Maybe I can do the old that I've done a few times. Bam! Those fall off and then those fall off, you know? I've done that a couple of times. Busted, you know, whoo. But I'm just saying, God doesn't put 400 pounds on you ever, ever. He gives you what you can handle in His grace. And this is convicting because you can never make an excuse again if this or this or this or this or this hadn't happened. No, no. He never tempts you beyond what you're able or allows you to be tempted beyond what you're able because he is not behind temptation as James tells us but he never allows it he always governs it he always provides the way of escape so it's convicting but it's also liberating because God is with you he's with you to help you he's present and attends you never allowing temptation to be too great always providing the way of escape And so at the end of Jeremiah 32, in the New Covenant, he says, I will not turn away from doing you good. I will rejoice over you to do you good. What is the good that he does? He says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they will not turn from me. He says, I'll rejoice over you to do you this good, to give you the kind of love for me and delight in me, trust in me, awe and devotion for me that will enable you not to turn away from me. And so the intensity of their desire for me will hold them close to me and protect them from turning away from me. I will do that in the new covenant. I will put my fear in your heart. You see, your liberty depends on owning your responsibility. Excuses create the chains for slaves. Excuses mean I'm a pathetic, helpless victim. I can never be different. My circumstances won't change, so I can't change. Yet apart from Christ, okay, in terms of through and through change from the inside out, a change that completely renovate your life. Yes, this comes from God. But in Christ, depending upon Christ, you can never make that statement again. Apart from Him, yes. But in Christ, I'm not a helpless victim. And I must say, just as surely as I say with Jesus, apart from Him, I can do nothing. I must say with Paul, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You must say that, brother or sister. Paul doesn't say that for us to sit back and say, golly, wish I could say that. But he's Paul. He's an apostle. That's not why that's there, so that we admire him from a distance. It's to say, this is the Christian life. This is your confession. This is the grace of God that is given to every believer. That we can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And of course, interestingly, in that context, he's talking about every kind of circumstance. I can do all things. So very particular in every circumstance. You know, some think of a hardy grass that's able to grow in any environment, any sunshine or shade, a lot of water, not much water, rich soil, not so rich soil. It just grows. And that's how we bring glory to his great power. We grow in all circumstances. We grow in all conditions. 
We grow in mistreatment. We grow in bad times. We grow in good times. We manifest His glory and His power. He upholds us no matter what. And that's why I love that phrase, as I've used it before in 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the idea is that love, believing and trusting in God, continues to pour itself out to people in every circumstance. That's what love does. That's how it acts. No excuses. And how glorious that God is faithful. He is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. Brothers and sisters, um, I encourage you, walk in this grace. And if you do not know Christ, it begins by coming. Not, God doesn't say to you, hey, fix yourself and then we'll talk turkey. Fix yourself, straighten out your life, and then come to me and I'll see if you straighten it out enough and we can start being friends. That's not the, God, that's not the good news. The good news is, I know you're broken. I know the sinfulness of your heart far more than you do. Come to me. I will forgive you. My son has died for sinners of the worst kind. My son has taken away sin for anyone that will trust in him. Just come to me as you are. Put your life into my hands. I will transform you. Trust me to forgive you and change you. That's the good news. That's the beginning place so that, as John says, we love because we first experienced his love and forgiveness. We pour ourselves out in love because we have experienced the gracious forgiveness and love of God in Christ. Will you not come to him and begin to experience that liberty of being able to love progressively, not perfectly, but progressively to love in all circumstances? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of this world that just crowds around us to draw us away from Christ, that you are bold to tell us that you are faithful and we are never, ever put in a situation where we have to sin. We are never forced to sin, Lord. Such is your power, such is the grace in our hearts, such is your presence with us, such is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, such is the mighty work of Christ dying and being raised and ascending into heaven and interceding for us. O Lord, you uphold your people and nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ. Lord, we pray you would give us a new vigor, a new energy, a new strength to resist sin. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to believe all that you have done and are doing for us in Christ Jesus and that we truly will become more like Christ from from glory to glory, as Paul says, being made into his very image. We thank you that this is your work that you're doing in us. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times 
directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love. But the fool.